This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. To keep you in suspense. I had to be everyday crime. Night transmissions. Night transmissions. Night transmissions. Hello, hello. This is Gary Clendon, and this is Night Transmissions 123. I suppose some of you have noticed that production of night transmissions seems to have slowed down. Well, it really isn't a matter of seems, it's a matter of has. Things have been busy, and as I've said before, it's just me. I have no intention of abandoning this, and I think as the spring wears on and we get into summer, I'll be able to dedicate a bit more time to the program, although you can expect me during the summer to take three or four weeks off, but I will, during this time, be sure to post at least some reruns. But I suppose we should get past that and into the shows on this program. In the first segment, John Dixon Carr Again, a host, an episode of Murder by Experts, which was an anthology that ran in the United States between 1949 and 1951 on Mutual. Murder by Experts was actually reasonably popular. It produced about 130 episodes, of which, unfortunately, only a handful are known to survive. This David Cogan production revolves around the premise that each week a guest mystery writer would select a short story from another writer, as in not one of their own stories, and that would be presented as that week's show. Often, as in this show, the adaptations were done by David Cogan's writing partner, Robert A. Arthur. The team of David Cogan and Robert A. Arthur may be familiar to you as they did a good deal of old-time radio. They were the writer and creator of The Mysterious Traveler and The Strange Doctor Weird and really numerous other radio programs. The show today, which ran on June the 13th of 1949, was written by Andrew Evans, about who I've really been able to find nothing. Oh, there is a writer who is still active, named Robert Evans, but this is a youngish travel writer whose works are just literally all over the internet. Couldn't possibly be the same guy, could it? I really don't think so. I don't see how he could have possibly written this story that was presented on Murder by Experts nearly 65 years ago. This is a clever story, and I'm going to risk a slight, a small amount of spoilers by telling you at least a little bit about it 
You see, it starts at the 12th reunion of college classmates who graduated in the year of 1936. That's the story of Paul Baxter, who, upon meeting a couple of good friends from that time, tells them his story. It's a grim story, what has happened to him in the intervening 12 years. You see, the day after graduation, he woke up to a murder. Ah, not his murder, of course. That would make the show a completely different kind of show. But he finds a corpse in his bedroom. He doesn't remember making the corpse. He doesn't remember putting it there. But that's definitely his knife sticking out of that man's chest. What would you think? It's your room. It's your knife. What would you think? And then what would you do if it turned out to be a joke on you? Some joke. Some friends. I got to tell you, a murder can ruin your entire day. And it really does wreak havoc on a well-ordered schedule. Murder by Expert The Mutual Broadcasting System presents Murder by Experts with your host and narrator, Mr. John Dixon Carr, world-famous mystery novelist and author of the recently published bestseller, The Life of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is John Dixon Carr. Each evening at this time, Murder by Experts brings you a story of crime and mystery which has been chosen for your approval by one of the world's leading detective writers. Those experts who are themselves masters of the art of murder and can hold tensity at its highest. Tonight's guest expert is Mr. Hugh Pentacle, author of many memorable thrillers, who has selected a story by a young newcomer you'll do well to watch, Andrew Evans. Be very careful as you listen, for, as Mr. Pentecost says of this thriller, the story has not only a twist, but an unforeseen double twist, which takes one completely by surprise. And now we present Summer Heat. Look now at the old elm, the ivy-covered building on the campus of a small Midwestern university. It's a fine June afternoon when you hear laughter and the greetings of the reunion of the class of 36. Twelve years passed, but none, none of the members of the class seems much older to each other. There's the dark-haired Paul Baxter wandering rather strangely. There are two of his old friends, prosperous now, judged by their clothes, and boisterous in greeting. Paul! Paul Baxter! You old rascal! It's sure good to see you again. Oh, hello, Steve. Bert, this is a surprise. Oh, why didn't you have a right to us, Paul? You had our addresses. Why, sure. That's no way to treat old classmates. Just think, 12 years. Oh, they sure have gone fast. Too fast to suit me. <laughs> Say, Paul, you've turned awful gray for only 33. Well, he always did take things too seriously. I suppose by now, Paul, you're one of the biggest lawyers in the state, huh? 
How's Marcia? Yeah, you were all set to marry her after graduation, remember? Yes, and you were going to become her father's junior law partner. Oh, you sure had a sweet set up there. <laughs> well, uh, things worked out a, a little differently. You see, that party we had graduation night... Do you remember it? Remember it? <laughs> How can we forget it? <laughs> oh, that was a real blowout. <laughs> were you tight, Paul? Well, you know, that party uh, sort of changed my whole life. Changed your life? Well, how? Well, I, uh, I, I don't remember much about the party itself. I, I guess I had too many drinks. In fact, I, I don't remember anything until I woke up the next morning. I could hear old Trinity ringing... I awoke to find myself on the couch in my living room. It was noon. The room was hot, stiflingly hot. I remembered I had a date with Marcia and her father at one o'clock. I got to my feet. My head ached. There were heat waves before my eyes. Feeling sick, I staggered toward my bedroom. and Then I saw him, a man, asleep on my bed, his back to me. For a moment, I stood there trying to remember if someone had come home from the party with me. But the night before was a total blank. I crossed to the bed... Bent over, shook his shoulder. Hey, fella. Hey, it's noon. Wake up. Come on, wake up. So I shook him. He had flopped over and looked up at me with staring eyes. He was dead. And there was a knife in his chest. My hunting knife. I stood stunned, staring down at the body on my bed. The dead man was an utter stranger to me. He was neatly dressed in old clothes. And my knife, my knife was in his heart. I killed him. I couldn't remember when or how or why, but I killed him. Frantically, I, I tried to remember what it was. he a panhandler? Someone I'd met on the street and drunkenly brought home with me? I didn't know. I couldn't remember. As I stood there, trying to get a grip on myself, I suddenly realized there was someone at the door. Instinctively, I walked into the living room and towards the door. Just as I was about to open it, I realized the danger of letting anyone into the apartment. I put my ear against the door and listened. I heard voices. Yours, Steve. And yours, Bert. <laughs> hey, Paul, open up. We want to say goodbye. Come on, Paul. Wake up, will you? We're leaving for California in 15 minutes. <laughs> I guess old Paul isn't in. Yeah. I wonder how he felt when he woke up. <laughs> Boy, what a head he must have had. <laughs> Still, I sure hate to leave without saying goodbye. Well, he has our California address. He yeah. can write to us. Come on, or we'll miss that train. And they were both gone. And I dared to breathe again. I tried to think calmly, figure out what to do. I knew I should call the police, but they... They might charge me with murder. And what defense could I offer? I thought of Marcia. The slightest scandal and everything would be off. Our marriage, my job, my future. I couldn't call the police. I couldn't call them and sacrifice everything I'd worked for. Somehow I had to get the body out of my apartment, get rid of it before it was found. Then they came. My car was in the basement, garage. The dumbwaiter in the kitchen led down to the basement. I could put the dead man in the dumbwaiter, lower him to the basement, get him in my car, and then... It was Jenny, the cleaning woman. She'd let herself in with a key. I hurried into the living room, closing the bedroom door behind me. Oh, there you are. A fine time for a rising young lawyer to be getting up. Oh, hello, Jenny. I I, I guess I overslept. I was at a party last night. A party, was it? Oh, everyone on the campus is talking about it. And the complaint. Well, now, step aside and let me into that bedroom. i got to stop. Jenny, can't you come back later into... No, I can't. Now get out of my way. Jenny, wait. I don't want you to clean up yet. What's wrong? Why are you blocking the door like... Well, the truth of the matter is... One of the boys had a bit too much last night, and he's in my bedroom, sleeping it off. Oh, well, get him out of there. Take him to a Turkish bath. Oh, yes, that's that's a good idea. Look, Jenny, just give me half an hour to get him dressed and out of here. Then you can come back and clean up. A half hour, nothing. I'll give you exactly five minutes. All right, Jenny, I'll have him out of here by then. You'd better. She was gone, and I had five minutes, just five minutes. 
I went into the bedroom and quickly went through the dead man's pockets. They were empty. There was no identification in them. The thin, pinched face told me he was a nobody, a derelict, someone who might never be missed. As I was about to lift him off the bed, the phone rang. Shrill ring filled the room. Hello? Hello, darling. Mush? How was your stag party last night? Did you miss me? Miss you? You sound as though you have a dreadful hangover. Hangover? Oh, yes. Oh, excuse me a minute, Marcia. There's someone at the door. Yes? I'll be coming in your room in another minute, Paul. Jenny. So get your friend out of there. Oh, yes, Jenny, yes. Just give me another minute and we'll be out of here. Marcia, I, I can't talk to you any longer. I'm in a hurry. Then you haven't forgotten your appointment with Father and myself at one o'clock. No, no, no. I may be a little late, but I'll be there. Paul, you must be late. I've told you over and over what a stickler Father is for punctuality. He can't stand people who are late for appointments. Well, you recall how furious he was when you didn't I know, Marcia, but I... You have 45 minutes to shave, shower, and dress. That's plenty of time. And, Paul, wear your gray flannel suit with a blue knitted tie and be sure you're there. Yes, Marcia, yes, but I've got to hang up. Jenny will be coming back any minute that I... Well, what if she is? Now, darling, you haven't forgotten what was yesterday afternoon. Yesterday afternoon? No, I know Father Frost inclined to bully you, but don't let it upset you. After all, it's our feast. Why, I can't talk any longer. I've got to hang up. Jenny will be back. I've only seconds left. What are you talking about? Now, when Father asks Marcia, you... I've got to hang up. I've got to. Goodbye. I hung up the phone, wiped the sweat running down my face. It took only a moment to lift him off the bed, carry him into the kitchen, pull the dumbwaiter up and put his body into it. I closed the door to the dumbwaiter, ran out of the apartment, and started down the stairs to the basement. I got down to the basement to find Ben, the janitor, leisurely pulling on the dumbwaiter rope. Ben! Oh, Ben! Oh, love, Paul. If it's your car you're after, it's there by the door, all washed like yeah. Thanks, but Ben, stop a minute, will you? I, I want you to do something for me. Sure, Paul. Just as soon as I've emptied this dumbwaiter... Will you stop blowing that dumbwaiter? Stop it! Here! Hi. What's wrong with you? You're acting mighty strange. I, I'm sorry, I, I shouted. It's just that well, there, there's a package up in my apartment that I'd like you to mail right away. There's a dollar in for you. All right, but there ain't no need to rush. Today's Sunday, the post office closed. Closed? Say, what's the matter with you anyway? The heat. Uh, something awful heavy on this somewhere. Wait, wait, wait a minute, there's something else. How's that? Stop a minute, will you? How can I talk to you while you're lowering that dumbwaiter? Go ahead, I can hear everything you're saying. Let go of that rope, let go of you here. Hey! You're going crazy or something? Up here for mine to call a super and tell him what No, you... no, 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 don't do that. I... Ben, uh, up in my apartment, there's a bottle. Bottle? Yes, I, I brought it home last night. It's, it's half full. I, I wanted you to have it for cleaning car. Oh, thanks. I sure appreciate that, Paul. Uh, I'll go up and get it as soon as I've emptied this dumbwaiter. It's almost down now. But Ben, Jenny just went in to clean. You know how she feels about drinking? Uh, Jenny, jumping grasshoppers. Why didn't you say so? That woman will pour it all down the drain if I don't care first. As soon as Ben disappeared up the stairs, I pulled the dumbwaiter the rest of the way down, opened the door, and he fell into my arms. Slinging the body over my shoulder, I staggered with it to my car and swiftly dropped him on the floor in the back. It was an old touring car. The top was long since gone. To hide the body from view, I, I covered it with an old blanket. A moment later, I started the motor and rolled smoothly out of the basement and into the driveway. As I did, I heard Ben shouting to me from my window. All right, Paul, wait a minute. I got something. I pretended not to hear Ben calling. Instead, I stepped on the gas. almost proud of myself as I drove past the campus. I was in trouble, but I was thinking fast, as a good lawyer should. I'd already decided I'd have to get rid of him by dumping him into the river. As I came to Main Street, driving neither too fast nor too slow, I turned left toward the river. There was very little traffic, and I was just about to speed up when behind me I heard a whistle blowing. 
It was Dugan, the town's only traffic cop, and he was blowing for me to stop. There was nothing to do but pull over to the curb. As Dugan hurried up to me, I realized I'd driven through a red light. Hello, Dugan. Never mind that hello, Dugan stuff. What's the matter, you colorblind? I, I, I'm sorry, Dugan. I, I just didn't notice the light. You just didn't notice the light. It's fine. Think you and me had better take a ride over to Justin Miller. Oh, look, don't run me in, Dugan. It won't happen again. That's what all you college cut-ups say. Next thing you know, you'll be telling me... What do you got there in the back? Underneath that blanket. Under the blanket? Heard me? What's under it? Why, uh, that's Roy Hamilton, one of my classmates. Yeah, well, what's he lying on the floor under a blanket on a hot day like this? Last night at our, our farewell shindig, Roy had a few too many. He's still out. I'm taking him home. Where does he live? At Mrs. Randolph's boarding house. What are you handing me? That's in the other direction. Yes, yes, I know, but first I'm taking him to the Turkish bath on Elm Street. Yeah, well, by the time you get him there, the poor guy will be dead. You got no sense. What do you mean? Look at the way you got the blanket over his head and in his heat, too. I better pull the blanket off his face so he can breathe. No, no. I, I mean, I covered his face on purpose. Suppose Dean Richards or somebody saw Roy like... Yeah, yeah, that's right. But just the same, I better... I better... I'll be right with you, Jensen. Where were we, Baxter? Oh, yeah, the guy in the back smothered to death if we don't move the... I'm coming, I'm coming. I won't run you in this time, Baxter, but from now on, stay awake when you're driving. I will. And for Pete's sake, pull the blanket off that guy's head. Take it easy, Jensen, I'm coming. I stepped on the gas. I muttered a prayer of thanks for old Johnson, the janitor of the medical school building, who had called Dugan just as he was reaching for the blanket that covered my passenger. It was a few minutes after one as I drove out of town. I could picture Marsha's father fuming in my lateness. The sun was scorching in my open car as I drove along River Road, looking for a place to hide the body. I needed one where there were trees to hide me. The hours that followed were like a nightmare. The heat was stifling and I could feel my hand shaking on the wheel from nervous tension. I drove and drove and drove, looking for a place to get rid of the body. But the whole countryside seemed to be swarming with people. Families, picnic, boy scouts, camping, kids in swimming, couples in parked cars. No matter where I turned, there was always someone in sight. Little spots danced before my eyes. Waves of faintness swept over me. My hand began to ache in my head, too. Unbearably. It was already long at three. I was late for my date with Marcia and her father. That didn't matter. Nothing mattered but to get rid of the body in the back of the car. I had to get rid of it. I had to. I drove, mile after mile, turning from one road to another, searching endlessly for a safe place to stop. Then I realized I was running out of gas. I saw a gas station ahead, and I decided to stop there. It was a risk, but I had to... Okay, mister. It's five gallons. Want me to check your oil? No, no, thanks. How much? A dollar fifteen. Oh, it's hot, isn't it? Yes, it's hot, all right. Here you are. That's one fifteen out of five. Now get your change. Hey, uh, this uh, rear tire looks a little flat. That's all right. You want me to check it? Won't take but a minute. It's all right, I tell you. Okay, mister, just you say, uh, uh, your rear door is open. I better shut that for you. Leave that door alone. Ah, but uh, you don't want to drive along with your rear door open. That's funny. There's uh, something in the car jamming it. I better have a... Leave that door alone and get my train. Fuck you. All right, mister. I'll get your change. He hurried into the station. I looked in the back of the car and saw what had kept the door from closing. It was a hand. His hand sticking out from under the blanket. The attendant had seen it. He would be phoning the police. I drove faster and faster. 
The police would be on the lookout for me now. My whole future depended on what I did in the next few minutes. And then it came to me. In one brief moment, it came to me. The perfect way to get rid of the body. It was so simple, so perfect, that I laughed aloud with relief. <laughs> a half hour later, I was parked in an alley behind one of the university buildings. It was Sunday, and the place was... Despite my fatigue and achy head, it took me but a moment to carry the body into the basement of the medical building and down the corridor to the basement room where the bodies for the second class kept. <laughs> where does a wise man hide a leaf in a forest? Where does a wise man hide a body? The room was big, cool, and the far end was a long metal tank. I reached the tank and lowered him floor. Excited. I had only to open the tank, slip him inside, and leave. I reached for the lid of the preserving tank and was about to open it when I heard a voice. Johnson, the janitor, quickly dropped behind the tank and waited, holding my breath. I heard you. Stop hiding and come out. I know you're here. I just saw your car through the window. You better come out if you know what's good for you. See, car. Head, there was a chest, just chance. All right, Johnson. Here I am. Boxed, eh? So it, it's you, is it? You're the one Johnson, who... Johnson, wait a minute. Let me explain. Explain, huh? After last night, I'm not listening to any fancy stories. I'm the one who gets blamed when... What's that on the floor behind you? On the floor? What? Why, nothing, Johnson. Uh, you think I'm blind or something? Step aside and let me wait. It's a body. It's a body. So that's it. I thought you were trying to steal one. Instead, you were bringing it. Yes, I would bring it. And just what were you going to do with that gentleman on the floor? Put him back in the tank with the rest? That's right. I, I thought he might not notice. As if I would have known. Well, go on. Call the cops. All right, Max. Of course, sir. Uh... I don't have to call the cops. Nobody knows about this but you and... What What do you mean? Well, I was going to make a report, but uh, this way there's no harm done, so I might be able to overlook the whole thing if I was persuaded properly. You might overlook it? Eh, that's right. You just leave this fella to me and there's no fuss because nobody's the wiser. But do that? You'd keep your mouth shut? I guess I could be persuaded to. How much? Eh... Well, uh, suppose we say $50. $50? That, uh, is much considering what would happen if I reported you. Oh, no, no, it isn't $50. That's, that's very cheap to help me cover up a murder. Murder? Ah, more of your jokes. I'm not talking about murder. I'm talking about putting number 37 here back in his proper place. Number 37? Yes, 37. He just came in yesterday from the county poor farm. And last night he disappeared. Stolen by you and your drunken friend. And dressed up for a joke. Well, I don't like jokes like that. I drove downtown a while back to tell Dugan the constable about it, but... Well, I didn't tell him anything. It would mean trouble for me for being asleep on the job. 37. Aye, that's what I said. As long as you brought him back, there's no harm done. That's why I'm willing to be quiet. Then then I didn't kill him. It was just a joke somebody played on me. Just a practical joke. Here, here, here. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's a joke. It's a very good joke on me. This whole afternoon driving. Driving in the heat, trying to get rid of him. It was just a joke. A joke. For good pain. That's the story of what happened the day after our graduation party 12 ago. When I came to, I was in the college hospital. I'd been unconscious a week. They they said it was just a slight breakdown brought on by sunstroke. I was all right after a while, but somehow I, I wasn't interested in law. Marcia and I didn't get married, and I didn't become her father's junior law partner. 
Good Lord. We never knew any of Gosh, Paul, I can't tell you how sorry I am. We never dreamed our gag would turn out like that. Gag? Why, sure. See, after the party broke up that night, we were feeling pretty high, and, well, it was a crazy idea, but we thought it would be funny to steal a cadaver from the medical college and leave it in your room with, with your knife in it. It was you? The two of you? Yes, Paul. Gosh, I feel terrible about this. Well, that day we left, came up to your apartment to tell you about a little joke. Uh, only you weren't in. We had to rush for our train, but we phoned for station. Ben, the janitor answered, told him explain about the devil. I heard him calling, but... Paul, will you ever be able to forgive us for what happened? Forgive you? Forgive you? No! No, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you, do you hear? He sure was. He just went crazy. Well, I'm sure sorry this happened. See, he slipped away from the hospital this afternoon. We figured he'd head this way. The hospital? Yes. Poor fellow had a bad breakdown just after he graduated 12 years ago. He's been locked up ever since. Locked up? Yeah. He's always been perfectly harmless, though. He just went around all the time looking for a place to hide something. This is the first time he ever got violent. I can't figure out what came over him. In our cast were Lawson Zerbe, Bryna Rayburn, Ian Martin, Cameron Andrews, Bill Zuckert, and Frank Barron. Summer Heat by Andrew Evans was adapted for radio by Robert A. Arthur and David Cogan. Original music was composed by Richard LePage. The orchestra was conducted by Emerson Buckley. Murder by Experts is produced and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Cogan. All characters in this story were fictitious, and any resemblance to the names of actual persons was purely coincidental. Bill Tonkin speaking. This is the world's largest network serving more than 500 radio stations, the Mutual Broadcasting System. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Stories of the Storyteller by Fanny Coe. The Story of the Red-Headed Woodpecker. Long, long ago there lived an old woman in a little cottage by the forest. She was not a poor old woman. She had plenty of wood to burn in winter, and plenty of meal to bake into bread all the year round. Her clothes were old-fashioned, but warm. She always wore a gray dress and a little red cap. Late one summer afternoon, the cottage door was open. The old woman stood by her fire, baking cakes for her evening meal. How good they smelled! A tall old man who was passing by the cottage stopped a moment. Then he pushed open the garden gate and walked up the path to the door. The old woman was bending low over the cakes, but she saw his shadow and looked up. "'Will you give me one of your cakes?' said the man. The woman thought to herself, "'Why did I leave the door open?' The smell of these hot cakes will bring every beggar within miles to my house. Then she looked a second time at the man and saw that he was no beggar. He stood like a king in the doorway. His blue eyes were kind, but very keen. She looked at the six cakes that lay crisp and hot on the hearth. Well, 
I will give him one, she thought. But these are all too large. She took a small handful of meal from the barrel and began to bake it into a cake. The man watched her from the door. As she turned the cake, it seemed to her too large to give away. I will bake a smaller one, she said to herself. She did not glance toward the stranger, but caught up a wee bit of meal and began to cook the second cake. But that also looked too large to give away. She cooked a third cake that was no larger than a thimble. But when it was done, she shook her head, for it also was too large to give away. And still the old man waited patiently in the doorway, watching it all. Then the old woman gathered up the cakes, large and small, and put them on a plate. The plate she set on the pantry shelf, and then locked the door. I have no food for you, she said to the old man. My cakes seem very small when I eat them, but they are far too large to give away. Ask bread at another door. The old man's blue eyes flashed with fire as he drew himself up proudly. I have been round the world, but never have I met a soul so small. You have shelter, food, and fire, but you will not share with another. This is your punishment. You shall seek your scanty food with pain. You shall bore, bore, bore in hard tree trunks for your food. The old man struck his staff on the floor. A strong gust of wind carried the old woman up the chimney. The flames scorched her gray clothes black, but her red cap was unharmed. A woodpecker flew out of the chimney and away to the wood. Rap, rap, rap. You can hear her tapping her beak on the tree trunks as she hunts for food, but always and everywhere. She wears a black coat and a little red cap. Watch for the woodpecker and see if it is not so. You are listening to Night Transmissions. want to alarm you, but there is more to come. You know, one of the things I like about old dame radio, and I know I've mentioned this before, so bear with me while I blather on for just a little bit, and that's their reliance upon the classics. It's really not unusual to find in one of these old anthologies the adaptation of classic literature. Like today, on the Weird Circle from November the 11th of 1943, it's the adaptation of Balzac's 1830 short story, Passion in the Desert. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, but I will tell you that available on the website is a link to the text of this short story, which is in the public domain. In fact, what I'll probably do is just link it to the Gutenberg page, 
where they have a number of ways to process the information. There'll be a way to just read it online, or you'll be able to download it as a as a Kindle or an EPUB file or or an HTML. Whatever you need, it'll be there. This is worth doing because this adaptation of the Balzac short story differs considerably from the short story, which is not a heavy slog and not very long. If I remember right, it's under 6,000 words. In the meantime... Out of the past, phantoms of a world gone by speak again their immortal tale. A passion in the desert. Have you ever noticed how very much a woman is like a bee? The resemblance, no doubt, is due to the fact that they have so very much common. Any man of us frequently has seen a woman or a good facsimile thereof at any problem. But there is only one man of my experience who saw a bee turn into a woman. He was a Frenchman by the name of Gaston Monet. It all started in Upper Egypt. A column of soldiers of the French Foreign Legion was on the march to join their eastern flank. After three months of marching and fighting, guerrilla fashion, this particular group came to a small Arab village named Bella Heber. Strangely enough, in that isolated, dirty village, there was one white woman. You have no idea what a white woman looks like to a soldier who's been on the march for months. And this one, well, she was no ordinary woman. She was lithe and subtle, like a desert panther. Her skin was tanned by the sun, and her hair, it was hairy and brown with gold lights. And her eyes, they were the most amazing part of her. They were large yellow orbs, remote and fathomless. She stood in the narrow streets watching the column of soldiers march by, and then she glided out from the group of gaping natives and brushed one soldier's shoulder with her hand, Gaston's shoulder. He turned and... What do you want? Let's talk to you. I can be court-martialed for talking to you. Terribly important, please. Not now. I, I'll meet you later. Please, please go back. Later? When? Midnight tonight? If you fail me, I will die. Don't fail me. Midnight, then. But where? At the end of the ponds. We went at the city. Goodbye. Go quickly before you're seen. Goodbye. Amade! Oh! We make camp at the outer gate of the city. Do you understand? Amade! Amade! Michel, wasn't she a beauty? What are you talking about, Gaston? I didn't see anybody. The white girl, the one who talked to me. Gaston, have you lost your mind completely? Nobody talked to you. You are seeing things. But the, the woman who whispered to me. Woman? Just a group of natives in a tame panther. <laughs> You've quite an eye for women, Michelle. But you miss this one. And I'm to see her again tonight, midnight. And so it was that night when the moon was yellow in the sky. Gaston sneaked away from camp and walked down the street, walked to the end of the mudbank road. He saw the girl standing under the palms and his pulse quickened. But blended with that quickening was something more, something of fear, something in her eyes. In those cold, placid yellow eyes. Something that seemed to swim the lips. You've come at last. I was worried. What is your name? Gaston Monet. And yours? Mignon Alwa. Why do you look at me that? Oh, you're the first decent thing I've seen in months. <laughs> Am I? Tell me. 
why did you ask me, out of all of the others, to, to meet you here tonight? I mean, it is strange, isn't it? Perhaps it is fate. Besides, I am in trouble. I'm stranded here. I set out on an expedition with some friends. Friends? Yes, friends from France. We were attacked and they were killed. The natives leave the village. You know that. And I can't stand it here longer. But, but how can I help you? You are brave, the draw. You could take me to a coastal city and then I could sail for France. For civilization. But, but I can't desert my outfit. And just leave suddenly into the desert? Besides, we, we have no provisions. I have. I've saved them for a long time waiting for just such a one as you. And the journey is simple. Do east four days march. I, I should like to help you very much in, in any, any way I can, but... Oh, confound it, that's desertion. I, I just can't, woman. If leave me here now, I will die. I will die in this place. God, please, God, lose me. Please, sir. It was warm out that evening, warm, and the desert moon plays tricks with a man's mind. And the girl Mignon was more important to Gaston then than his country, his army, or his friends. And so they left together in the dead of the night. They stole out of Delaheba into the desert, into the lonely desert, with just enough provisions to make their way to the coast. And so the night passed and turned into morning, and that day passed and turned into another, and back in the village of Delaheba. Lieutenant Michel reported Monet's absence to Major Duval. The alarm was given, and the barracks were searched. Lieutenant Michel reporting, sir. Yes, Lieutenant. The entire city's been searched, sir, but not a sign of him. I'm afraid, sir, it is desertion. I thought so. Because some Monet never was arming material. Weak. He'll never get away. We should let him die in that desert. Please, sir. Not out there. These sandstorms, they have started. Oh, forget him. Blast these young men who joined the foreign service and expected to be a picnic. What do they think war is? I quite the They desert, and then they expect me to send out a searching party to look for them. Well, they're right, I'll have to. You, Michel, choose four men, get your provisions from headquarters, and start toward the coast. Try to head him off. You can reach the coast before he does. Where will we rejoin you, sir? Orders will be waiting for you on the coast. That's all, Lieutenant Michel. Thank you, sir. And so the search party started under the leadership of Lieutenant Michel. But Gaston Monet and Mignon were miles ahead of them. Camping for the night under the yellow moon, completely unaware that they were being followed, Gaston looked at the girl and breathed in the magic air of the day. I dreamt of people like you, Mignon, and in my arms they came from nowhere, just as you came from nowhere. Are you trying to pry into my secret? <laughs> no, no, I, I was just looking at you. You are so incredibly lovely. Oh, I'm glad. Mignon, we're about three days' march from the sea. We're only two days away from another native village. I could get work there, and, and we could get married. Married? Nonsense. And, and settle down. We'd be there five years or so, and then we'd return to France. The army would have forgotten about me by then, and I'd get a good job. I'd make you proud of me. Buried out here for another five years, honestly, Gaston. But you wouldn't be buried. You'd be with me, just the two of us together. I'm, I'm frightfully in love with you. If you loved me, you wouldn't treat me the way you do. If I loved you, I probably wouldn't. But, but you, you chose me out of all the others. I chose you. And now, if you don't mind, let's get some sleep. We're going to be on the march tomorrow morning. Sleep and march. Sleep and march. Three more days and then, then give myself up to the authorities. We'll probably spend a few days in the guardhouse. Nothing more for this little adventure. Stop dramatizing yourself. The army calls it desertion, Mignon. There's only one punishment for desertion. What is that? You know very well what it is. Death. 
You got away once, you'll get away again. Don't you care what happens to me? Of course I care, but what can I do? <laughs> what is that? Oh, a desert lion. Don't worry. He won't come near us, not while the fire is going. Fortunately, a beast is afraid of fire, but a woman loves it. Good night, good. Good night, Mignon. Well, such a hurt way to say good night. <laughs> and so they slept by the fire, and the fire played tricks with the shadows on the sand as they slept. But crouched not far from them was the panther, eyeing the boy and the girl, and it crept toward the fire unafraid, sidling up to the boy until its large yellow head was from Gaston's arm, and it too fell asleep, and the fire died down. The morning sun rose over the sands, and they awoke, all three. Gaston, look to you. Where's my rifle? I, I've got it. <gasps> oh. Don't make any fast move, whatever you do, Mignon. Any sudden action will frighten the animal, and she'll spring on us. You can't sit here and wait. Move your left arm very slowly toward the rifle. Very slowly. And try to hand it to me. I wonder why she stands there looking at me like that. I wonder. She's coming closer. Do you like a great tabby? Here, I got the gun. I'll push it toward you. We can't shoot at this close range. She would never give me time to take aim. Look at her, sitting right next to you. Yes, why? She, she licked my arm. I believe she wants to make friends. What are you going to do? Pat her. I believe she'd allow me to. <gasps> there. There you are. You're a beautiful creature, aren't you? Beautiful lady. She's purring, just like a great house. Yes, yes, she likes it. I believe we've got a pet, Mignon. Pet, indeed. She'll purr at you now and turn on you at the first opportunity. Yes, women and beasts are very much alike. They make friends of you and then they turn on you, don't they? Yes. Look, she's allowing me to play with her ears. What are we going to do with... Nothing. Not now, at any rate. Just be careful not to frighten her. As soon as she goes any distance from us, I'll be able to take some kind of aim and shoot her. Yes, you're right. Look at her, Mignon. Do you notice anything? Nothing except she's a lovely specimen. Lovely, yes. Lovely. And she looks like you. But like me? Nonsense. Why? It's but... true. Look at her eyes. Yellow like yours. Deep like yours. Cruel and cold. Predatory like yours. Just <laughs> I tell you, it's nonsense. Come over here, Mignon. Try to make a friend of her. I want you to pet her, just as I'm doing. You will let me? Try it. All right. <laughs> she snapped it. Try it again. No, I'm, I'm afraid, Gaston. It's nice to see you afraid of something. I said try it again. No, 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 I, I, I won't. I said try it again. Did you hear me? <laughs> My arm. She bit my arm at <laughs> She doesn't like you, Mignon. I wonder why. Watch. She'll allow me to stroke her. Please, Gaston, don't. Are you frightened, my dear? Why this animal won't hurt you? Beautiful creature, aren't you? You don't like Mignon, do you? Or perhaps you do like her to test the sharpness of your claws. Don't, 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 don't joke about it, Gaston. You don't know what you're doing. You have no idea. You have no idea. Am I frightening you? Frightening me? 
I have only one chance to be a woman, a real woman, a chance to go to a civilized country, a chance to break away from them. And for my brothers and sisters, kill that animal or I must turn to them. I lied to you before, Gaston. I lied to you when I said I came to Delahaber with an expedition. I was born here just as she was born here. And there is a kinship between us. Yes, a kinship you will never understand. Please, Gaston, kill that son, Mignon begged Gaston to kill the panther, but Gaston insisted that all three traveled toward the coast together. Why, he never knew. It was as if some power stronger than himself forced him on. The beautifully sleek creature followed behind Gaston and the girl, at times coming up to rub her fine, sleek body against his leg and growled, burying her fangs at the girl. When night began to creep over the sands like some monster dark hand, he stopped not far. We'll make camp here, Mignon. Yes. Here in the desert. So tired, guess. Are you? Poor little girl. How about you, beautiful lady? You'd better spread out the blankets and the food. I'll get some water. Oh, don't leave me alone with her, please, Gus. She won't hurt you if you leave her alone. Oh, you don't know what you're saying. I'll be back directly. The water's only some half mile away. Call for help Gaston, if you need any. Gaston, please, please, Gaston. What are you afraid of? I said I'd be right back and the animal might follow me. But she's not following you. She's staying still, here. Still, she won't hurt you. You've got the gun just in case. Gaston, please. Don't tease me. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I like to see you frightened, you. You who are so sure of yourself. I'll be back directly. Lie still, that point gun. Don't hurt you. Why do you look at me like that? Yes, Captain. We are alive. Our eyes, our souls, and our emotions. No, stay where you are until I get an aim. A perfect aim. No, no, no! Leave her alone, lady. I said leave Mignon alone. That's a good girl. There, beautiful. Mignon. You were a fool, Mignon, a fool. She wouldn't have hurt you if you hadn't tried to shoot her. I frightened her. I was so frightened. She's so like me, and she knows it. She wanted to kill me. She wanted more. Absorb a human soul in that animal body. Quiet, quietly. Waiting for me. Watching and waiting. Waiting for me to die. <laughs> quiet, my quiet. Lies. Lies to short. A human life. That's why I was so anxious to get away from the desert. You will. No. <laughs> Little lady. You. You killed her. And I'll kill you. Yes, kill you for taking the only thing I love. Yes, I'll kill you. <laughs> Mignon, Mignon, where are you? But you're dead. You're dead, aren't you? 
But I heard you laugh. Or was it the panther? Mignon, your laugh came from the throat of the panther. Can it be the blending of two souls? The soul of a woman and a beast? If I kill the panther, then I kill you. For you live in her, little lady. And you are Mignon. Mignon, come over. Come over here, my darling. Yes, Mignon. Now I never have to return to the coast. I'll return to the little native village and you'll be my pet. You'll never leave me now, will you? Will you, Mignon? My beautiful creature. You're wounded, aren't you? A bullet through your shoulder. Will you let me fix it? There. Lie still, Mignon. It won't hurt you much. It's just a flesh wound in your shoulder. There. Take out my pocket knife and a little water. No, no, lady, it won't hurt. It won't hurt at all. Just another minute and... There you are. It's a nice, clean wound. How does it feel, beautiful lady? How does that feel? And now, this shell of a woman which was once the soul of Mignon must be buried a decent here in the burning sand. And so it was. The panther lay lazily in the sun while Gaston dug a sandy grave for the body that had been Mignon and placed her in it. The sun slowly set in the orange desert, and the panther waited sleepily for him. And not many miles back, the search party plodded on in a cool wind over the great rises of Sand Mountain. Lieutenant Michel and Trichard walked ahead. Come along, men. I know you are tired, but we will soon catch up with him. How do you know, Lieutenant Michel? He might be gone ten different directions. If we miss him out here, we will catch you on the coast. Yes, there is only one route to this. That is the way. That is the way we go. Uh, don't you think he knows we're searching for him, sir? He left in too much of a hurry. He probably did not think about anything. Uh, I always thought Gaston liked the army. Jeff, you can never tell what a man is think. I always say, cherchez la femme, Lieutenant. You cannot very well cherchez la femme when there is not a woman within 30 to 40 miles of Delaheba. You don't know Gaston Monet, sir. Stop talking nonsense. You sound like you know more than you're saying, Lieutenant. Maybe I do, and maybe I don't. Tell me, Jacques, you made a complete search of Delaheba. Was there any record of a white woman living there? No, sir. Nobody ever seen a white woman in Delaheba. Well, was anybody else reported missing from the village? No, nobody. Just a pet panther that one of the natives owned. Panther? I went. I will. And well, he could wander. For miles ahead of him, tracking off to another native village, Gaston Monet and the sleek panther trekked through the sand, retracing their steps to a halfway mark, heading away from the coast, away from a world of civilization. The fourth day of the journey was almost an end, and provisions were... Mignon! Mignon! We must make camp again. The sun is setting, and night comes fast over the desert. We've only a little fruit left. You're hungry, aren't you? Well, beautiful lady, here you are. How is that? It's also you and Mignon. Mignon, what were you really? Where did you come from? What happened to that peculiar, distorted mind of yours? So much the beast, so very much a woman. <laughs> Are you laughing at me now? Yes, yes, I don't blame you. It is funny loving you so much. Loving you and your being so very far away and yet so close. Are you content now, darling? Content to stay with me forever? Please, please be content. Try hard to find happiness. You would never have been happy in France or in any other part of the world. And I'll take care of you the rest of your day. What is that? Another panther? Is that one of your kinsmen? 
Mignon. Mignon, you can't leave me, little lady. Please. Please, I'd take care of you. Don't leave me. Please don't leave me. I'll kill you if you leave me. You can't leave me. No, no. Come here. I'll hold you here. And you'll never get away. You won't leave me. Mignon. Mignon, don't pull away like that. Oh! The shaft. Don't. Don't. Where? Where's my knife? Where is it? Here it is. No. No, I told you I'd kill you if you tried. And I will. I will. There. The knife. Darling Mignon, this is your release. Yes, your release. Please come back. Please come back to me. Don't leave me alone in the desert. Mignon. You'll never go back to your panther friend. Never, darling. Never. Blood flowed freely from the wounded beast's heart, staining the yellow sands crimson. And Gaston turned toward the fading sun, his face streaked by tears, stained by sand. And walking away from the beast, he looked toward the sky. Then, falling face forward on the sand, he lay under the hot desert sun. Toward evening, as the sun set in the sky, the four-man searching party reached the bloodstained sand. Lieutenant Sheriff, look. Eh? The panther, dead. Suck bleu. Body covered with knives. Look behind him. Gaston. Gaston. Oh, it's no use, sir. Gaston Monet's been dead for well over 12 hours. Dead? The panther's body covered with knife wounds. And Gaston's body absolutely unharmed. Funny, ain't it? Not too funny. I wonder if that's the pet panther that disappeared. Probably. Jacques, never mention that in the report to Major Duval. Just right, desertion due to insanity. Insanity? Yes, Jacques. Insanity caused by desert madness. We have brought again the immortal tale, a passion in the desert. Bell keeper, all the bells. The Horned Women, a Celtic folktale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Taran Maximilian Defoe. The Horned Woman, a Celtic folktale by Lady Jane Francesca Wilde. A rich woman sat up late one night, carding and preparing wool, while all the family and servants were asleep. Suddenly, a knock was given at the door, and a voice called, Open! Open! Who is there? said the woman of the house. I am the witch of the one horn, was answered. The mistress, supposing that one of her neighbors had called and required assistance, opened the door, and a woman entered, having in her hand a pair of wool carders, and bearing a horn on her forehead, as if growing there. She sat down by the fire in silence, and began to card the wool with violent haste. Suddenly she paused, and said aloud, Where are the women? They delay too long. Then a second knock came to the door, and a voice called as before, Open, open! The mistress felt herself constrained to rise and open to the call, and immediately a second witch entered, having two horns on her forehead, and in her hand a wheel.
were spinning the wool. Give me place, she said. I am the witch of the two horns. And she began to spin as quick as lightning. And so the knocks went on, and the call was heard, and the witches entered, until at last twelve women sat round the fire, the first with one horn, the last with twelve horns, and they carded the thread, and turned their spinning wheels, and wound and wove, all singing together in an ancient rhyme, but no word did they speak to the mistress of the house. Strange to hear, and frightful to look upon, were these twelve women, with their horns, and their wheels, and the mistress felt near to death, and she tried to rise, that she might call for help, but she could not move, nor could she utter a word or a cry, for the spell of the witches was upon her. Then one of them called to her in Irish, and said, Rise, woman, make us a cake. Then the mistress searched for a vessel to bring water from the well, that she might mix the meal and make the cake, but she could find none, and they said to her, Take a sieve, and bring water in it. And she took the sieve, and went to the well, but the water poured from it, and she could fetch none for the cake. And she sat down by the well, and wept. Then a voice came by her, and said, Take yellow clay and moss, and bind them together, and plaster the sieve, so that it will hold. This she did, and the sieve held the water for the cake. And the voice said again, Return, and when thou comest to the north angle of the house, cry aloud three times, and say, the mountain of the Finian women, and the sky over it, is all on fire. And she did so. When the witches inside heard the call, a great and terrible cry broke from their lips, and they rushed forth with wild lamentations and shrieks, and fled away to Slevenamon, where was their chief abode. But the spirit of the well bade the mistress of the house to enter and prepare her home against the enchantments of the witches, if they returned again. And first, to break their spells, she sprinkled the water in which she had washed her child's feet, the feet water, outside the door on the threshold. Secondly, she took the cake, which the witches had made in her absence, of meal mixed with blood drawn from the sleeping family. And as she broke the cake in bits, and placed a bit in the mouth of each sleeper, and they were restored, and she took the cloth they had woven and placed it, half in and half out of the chest with the padlock. And lastly, she secured the door with a great crossbeam fastened in the jams, so that they could not enter. And having done these things, she waited. Not long were the witches in coming back, and they raged and called for vengeance. Open, open, they screamed. Open, feet water. I cannot, said the feet water. I am scattered on the ground, and my path is down to the low. Open, open, wood and tree and beam, they cried to the door. I cannot, said the door, for the beam is fixed in the jams, and I have no power to move. Open, open, cake that we have made and mingled with blood, they cried again. I cannot, said the cake, for I am broken and bruised, and my blood is on the lips of the sleeping children. Then the witches rushed through the air with great cries and fled back to sleeve Namon, uttering strange curses on the spirit of the well, who had wished their ruin. But the woman and the house were left in peace, and a mantle dropped by one of the witches in her flight was kept hung up by the mistress as a sign of the night's awful contest, and this mantle was in possession of the same family from generation to generation for five hundred years after.
Ellery Queen's Minute Mysteries. This is Ellery Queen with a case I call the Whiskey Mystery. When Gaylord Leonard called me to help authenticate a new find of his, another in his collection of pirate lore, I rushed to his house. At the entrance to his library was a cask, the kind used to store rum. It was carved with a traditional skull and crossbones and signed Bartholomew Roberts. We knew that Roberts was a notorious pirate, but both Leonard and I also knew the cask was a swindler's work of art. In a moment, I'll tell you how we knew. Oh, okay, we're going to take a quick break here now, but we'll be back real soon. of the whiskey mystery. I knew that the pirate Roberts was a teetotaler. He also wouldn't allow gambling or women on his ships, so the rum cask with his signature was a bloody fake. Listen again to Ellery Queen's Minute Mysteries. You know, every once in a while I find a treat. I find a radio program that does what radio can do so well. Up next is an episode of CBS Radio Workshop, which originally aired on February the 17th of 1956. This particular episode is comprised of two stories by Ray Bradbury. The Season of Disbelief, which was originally published in 1950, and then Hail and Farewell, which was originally published in 1948. I don't have much more to say about this. I don't want to spoil anything. I would say, whatever tonic you use to ward off melancholy, keep it handy. You may need it. CBS Radio, a division of the Columbia Broadcasting System and its 217 affiliated stations present the CBS Radio Workshop, radio's distinguished series dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, from Hollywood, Season of Disbelief and Hail and Farewell, adapted and directed by Anthony Ellis, two unusual and provocative character studies by one of America's most original authors, Ray Bradbury. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bradbury. It has always seemed to me that life, to all of us, is an endless coil of rope playing through our hands every moment of every hour of the day. The long line of the rope goes back to the time we were born and extends on out ahead to the time of our death. In between lies the eternal now, the flickering moments when each of us must play the rope as best we can, without burning our fingers, snarling the coils, or breaking the line. This is a study of one woman and her rope. Season of Disbelief. Mrs. Bentley was a saver. She saved tickets, old theater programs, bits of lace, scarves, railroad transfers and such things, all the tags and tokens of her experience she saved. 
I have a stack of records. Here's Caruso. That was in 1921 in New York. I was 40. John was still alive. Here's June Moon. 1929, I think, right after John died. That was the huge regret of her life, in a way. The one thing she had most enjoyed touching and listening to and looking at, she hadn't saved. John was far out in the meadow country, dated and boxed and hidden under grasses. And nothing remained of him but his high silk hat, his cane, and his good suit in the closet. But what she could keep, she had kept. Pink flower dresses crushed among mothballs and vast black trunks and cut glass dishes from her childhood. Her past lived with her. Then, the thing with the children. It happened in the middle of the summer. Mrs. Bentley, coming out to water the ivy on her front porch, saw the two cool-colored, sprawling girls lying on her green lawn, enjoying the immense prickling of the grass. At the very moment she was smiling down on them with her yellow mask face, Around the corner, like an open band, came an ice cream wagon. The two girls sat up, turning their heads like sunflowers after the sun. Little girls, would you like some? The wagon stopped. There was an exchange of money for pieces of the original Ice Age. These she gave to the girls who thanked her with snow in their mouths, their eyes darting from her buttoned-up shoes to her white hair. Don't you want a bite? No, no, child. I'm old enough and cold enough. The hottest day won't thaw me. Come up on the porch and sit in the shade. Uh, But mind you, don't drip. I'm Alice. She's Jane. How nice. I'm Mrs. Bentley. They called me Helen. I didn't know old ladies had first names. (laughs) Well, you never hear them used. My dear, when you're as old as I, they won't call you Jane either. Old age is dreadfully formal. How old are you? I remember the dinosaur. No, but how old? Seventy-five. That's old. I don't feel any different now than when I was your age. Our age? Yes, once I was a pretty little girl, just like you, Jane. What's the matter? Nothing. Oh, you don't have to go so soon, I hope. Well. Is something the matter? What? My mother says it isn't nice to fib. Of course it isn't. And not to listen to fib. Who was fibbing to you, Alice? You were. About what? About your age. About being a little girl. But I was. Many years ago, a little girl like you. Come on, Jan. But how ridiculous. It's perfectly obvious. Everyone was young once. (laughs) You're joking with us. You weren't really ten ever, were you, Miss Bentley? You run on home. Get away from here. I won't have you laughing. And your name's not really Helen. Of course it's Helen. Goodbye. Thanks for the ice cream. Once I played hopscotch. You hear me? I did. The idea. No one ever doubted I was a girl before. What a silly, horrible thing to do. I don't mind being old. Not really. But I do resent having my childhood taken away from me. After supper, she gathered together certain items in a perfumed kerchief. Then she went to her front porch and stood there stiffly for half an hour. As suddenly as night birds, the two girls flew by, and Mrs. Bentley's voice brought them to a fluttering rest. Girls! Girls! Yes, Mrs. Bentley? Come up on the porch. Yes, Yes, Mrs. Bentley. Bentley. I've got some treasures to show you. Uh, Sit down, both of you. (coughs) Now, here. 
I wore this when I was nine. It's a comb. Let's see. It's pretty. And here's a tiny ring I wore when I was eight. It doesn't fit my finger now. Why, it just fits me. And the comb fits my head. And here, here, a, a picture. Who's this little girl? It's me. Oh, it doesn't look like you. Anybody could get a picture like this somewhere. But it's the truth. Any more pictures, Mrs. Bentley, of you later? You got a picture of you at 15 and one at 20, one at 40, 50? Oh, nonsense. I, I don't have to show you anything. And we don't have to believe you. But this picture proves I was young. That's some other little girl like us. You borrowed it. I, I was married. Where's Mr. Bentley? He's been gone a long time. If he were here, he'd tell you how young and pretty I was when I was 22. But he's not here and he can't tell. I have a marriage certificate. You could have borrowed it. The only way I'll believe you were ever young is if you have someone say they saw you when you were 10. Thousands of people saw me, but they're dead, you little fool. Dead or ill or gone away in other towns. I don't know a soul here. Just moved here a few years ago, so no one saw me young. Well, there you are. Nobody saw her. Listen, you must take these things on faith. Someday you'll be as old as I. People say the same. Oh, no. They'll say those vultures were never hummingbirds. Those owls were never orioles. Those, those parrots were never bluebirds. One day you'll be like me. No, I won't. Me. You wait and see. You, child. Uh, your mother. Haven't you noticed over the years the change? No. She's always the same. I guess we'd better go home. Thanks for the comb. It's fine. And thanks for the ring. It just fits. And the picture of the little girl. No, come back. You can't have those. They're mine. No, you stole them. They belong to some little girl. You stole them. No. Come back. Oh, come back. She lay awake for many hours into that night, among her trunks and trinkets. A night wind blew in the room. The white curtain fluttered against a dark cane, which had leaned against that wall near the other bric-a-brac for many years. The cane trembled and fell. Its gold ferrule glittered in the moonlight. It was her husband's opera cane. It seemed as if he were pointing it at her, as he often had, using his soft, sad, reasonable voice. Those children are right. They stole nothing from you, my dear. These things don't belong to you here, you, now. They belong to her. That other you, so long ago. And then, as though an ancient phonograph record had been set hissing under a steel needle, she remembered a conversation she had once with Mr. Bentley. Mr. Bentley, so prim, a pink carnation in his whisk-broomed lapel. My dear, you never will understand time, will you? Don't you see, no matter how hard you try to be what you once were, you can only be what you are here and now. Time plays tricks. When you're nine, you think you've always been nine years old and will always be. When you're 30, it seems you've always been balanced there on that bright rim of middle life. And then, when you become 70, you are always and forever 70. You are in the present. You are trapped in a young now or an old now. But there is no other now to be seen. Ticket stubs are trickery. Saving things is a magic trick with mirrors. You're saving cocoons, corsets in a way you can never fit again. Why save them? You can't really prove you were ever young. Pictures. 
pictures, John. No, they lie. You're not the picture. After the No, you're not the dates or the ink or the paper. You're not these trunks of junk and tricks. You're only here now, the present you. Yes, I see. I see. In the morning, in the morning, I'll do something final about things. Settle down to being only me and nobody else for many other year. That's what I'll do. morning was bright and green, and there at her door, like moths bumping softly on the screen, were the two girls. Got any more things to give us, Mrs. Bentley? More of the little girls' things? She led them down the hall to the library. Uh, take this. The dress in which she had played the mandarin's daughter at 15. And this. And this. A kaleidoscope, a magnifying glass. Pick out anything you want. Books, skates, dolls, everything. They're yours. Ours? Only yours. And will you help me with a little work? I'm building a big fire in my backyard. I'm emptying the trunk, throwing out this trash for the trash man. It doesn't belong to me. Nothing ever belongs to anybody. We'll help you, Mrs. Bentley. It'll be fun. And now, on summer afternoons, you can see the two little girls like... Wrens on a wire on Mrs. Bentley's front porch. They sit in their cool dresses, not stirring, waiting for her. And when the silvery chimes of the ice cream man are heard, the front door opens, Mrs. Bentley floats out with her hand deep in the throat of her silver-mouthed purse, and for half an hour you can see them there on the porch, the two girls and the old lady, putting coldness into warmness, eating chocolate icicles, laughing. At last they are good friends. How old are you, Miss Bentley? Seventy-five. How old were you fifty years ago? Seventy-five. You were never young, were you? And never wore ribbons or dresses like these? No, Jane, never. Have you got a first name? My name is Mrs. Bentley. And you've always lived in this one house? Always. And never were pretty? Never. Never in a million trillion years? Never in a million trillion years. Presenting now the second of our duo and Mr. Ray Bradbury. The rope of life hisses through our fingers. We reach, it's gone. The beauty of any particular flower, song, poem, or person lies often in the fact that roses must fade, songs die with the breath, poems burn in the fire, golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. But what if beauty could be made to last? Would it still be beautiful or monstrous? Here's the study of a person who seized the traveling rope of life, a moment of beauty, and felt it freeze in his hands. Hail and farewell. He was going away. There was nothing else to do. The time was up, the clock had run out, and he was going very far away indeed. 
His suitcase was packed, shoes shined, hair brushed. It expressly washed behind his ears, and it remained only for him to go down the stairs, out the front door, and up the street to the small town station where the train would make a stop for him alone. Then Fox Hill, Illinois, would be left far off in his past. And he would go on, perhaps to Iowa, perhaps to Kansas, perhaps even to California. Willie? Yes? Almost time. All right. I'll be down. In the mirror on his dresser, he saw a face made of June dandelions and July apples and warm summer morning milk. There, as always, was his look of the angel and the innocent, which might never in the years of his life change. He picked up his valise, looked once more around his room, and went downstairs. Here I am. You can't really be leaving us, Willie. People are beginning to talk. I've been here three years now, but when people begin to talk, I know it's time to put on my shoes and buy a railroad ticket. It's all so strange. Just don't understand. It's so sudden. We'll miss you, Willie. We'll miss you very much. I'll write you every Christmas. It's uh, it's been a great pleasure and satisfaction. It's a shame it had to stop. Shame that you had to tell us about yourself. An awful shame you can't stay on. You're the nicest folks I ever had. Oh, Willie. Willie. It's not easy to go. You get used to things. You want to stay. But it doesn't work. I tried to stay on once after people began to suspect how horrible people said. All these years playing with our innocent children, they said. And us not guessing. Awful. And I finally had to leave town one night. It's not easy. You know darn well how much I love both of you. Thanks for three swell years. Well. Willie, where will you go? I don't know. I just start traveling. When I see a town that looks nice and green... I settle in. Will you ever come back? Oh, in about 20 years, maybe it should begin to show on my face. When it does, I'm going to make a grand tour of all the mothers and fathers I've had. Willie. We can't complain, Anna. Better to have had a son 36 months than none whatever. Well, I guess a time. Goodbye. Thanks. Willie kissed Anna quickly. Touched Steve's hand, seized his luggage, and was gone up the street in the green noon light under the trees, not looking back. A small boy, 12 years old, with a birth certificate in his valise to show that he had been born 43 years ago. The boys were playing on the green park diamond when he came by. He stood a little while among the oak tree shadows, watching them hurl the white, snowy baseball into the warm summer air. The boys' voices yelled, and the ball lit on the path near Willie. Hey, Willie! Where are you going, Willie? Uh, gonna visit a cousin of mine for a few days. Hmm? You guys just throwing the ball around, huh? Yeah. You taking the train alone, Willie? Yeah. Boy, that's neat. Hey, uh, how about a couple of throws? I got a little time. Sure, I guess so. Willie dropped his bag and ran back. The white baseball was already up in the sun and plunging down to him. And away again to their white figures, up in the sun again, rushing, life coming and going in a pattern. He thought of the last three years, now spent to the penny, and the five years before that, and so on down the line. The baseball flying here, there... Mr. and Mrs. Robert Hanlon, Creek Bend, Wisconsin, 1932, the first couple, the first year. Henry and Alice Boltz, Limeville, Iowa, 1935, the Smiths, the Eatons, Robinsons, 1939, 1945, husband and wife, husband and wife, no children, no children, 
No children. A knock on this door, a knock on that. Pardon me. Uh, my name is William. I wonder if I... A sandwich? Come in. Come in and sit down. Where are you from, son? The sandwich, tall glass of cold milk, the smiling, the nodding, the comfortable, leisurely talking. Well, son, you look like you've been traveling. You run off from somewhere. No. Are you an orphan? We always wanted kids. Never worked out. Never knew why one of those things. Well, getting late, son. Don't you think you better hit for home? I got no home. A boy like you? Not dry behind the ears? Your mother will get worried. I got no home and no folks anywhere in the world. I wonder... I wonder... Could I sleep here tonight? Oh, well, now... Well, son, I don't just know. We never considered taking oh, in the... We've got chicken for supper tonight. Enough for extras. Enough for company. The voices and the faces and the people and always the same first conversations... The years turning, flying away. The voice of Emily Robinson in a rocking chair in summer night darkness. The last night he stayed with her. The night she discovered his secret. Her voice saying, I look at all the little children's faces going by and I sometimes think, what a shame. What a shame that all these flowers have to be cut. All these bright fires have to be put out. What a shame all these have to get tall and unsightly and, and wrinkle and turn gray or get bald and finally all bone and wheeze be dead and buried off away. When I hear them laugh, I can't believe they'll ever go the road I'm going. They're so eager for everything. I, I guess that's what I miss most in older folks, the, the eagerness gone nine times out of ten, the freshness gone, so much of the drive and life down the drain. I like to watch school let out each day. It's, it's like someone threw a bunch of flowers out of the school front doors. How does it feel, Willie? How does it feel to be young forever? Are you happy? Are you as fine as you seem? I, I worked with what I had. After my folks died, after I found I couldn't get man's work anywhere, I, I tried carnivals, but they only laughed. Son, they said, you're not a midget, and even if you are, you look like a boy. We want midgets with midgets' faces. Sorry, son. What was I? A boy? I looked like a boy, sounded like a boy, so I might as well go on being a boy. What could I do? What job was there for me? And then one day I, I saw this man in a restaurant looking at another man's pictures of his kids. Sure wish I had kids, he said. Sure wish I had kids. And that instant, sitting there, I, I knew what my job would be for all the rest of my life. There was work for me. Making lonely people happy. Keeping myself busy. Playing forever. I knew I had to play forever. Deliver a few papers, run a few errands, mow a few lawns. All I had to do was to be a, a mother's son and a father's pride. But, Willie, didn't you ever get lonely? Didn't you want things that grown-ups wanted? I fought that out alone. I'm a boy, I told myself. I'll have to live in a boy's world, read boys' books, play boys' games, cut myself off from everything else. And I played it that way. Oh, it wasn't easy. There were times. But it's nice being a child for over 40 years. It's a living, as they say. And when you make other people happy, then you're almost happy, too. And anyway, in a few years now, I'll be in my second childhood. All the fevers will be out of me and all the unfulfilled things and most of the dreams. Then I can relax. He threw the baseball one last time and broke the reverie. 
When he was picking up his suitcase, the two boys stood beside him. They were embarrassed at his shaking hands with them. Oh, Willie. Means if you're going to China or something. Oh, that's right. It isn't. So long, Willie. See you next week. Yeah. So long, Sam. So long, Jeannie. And he was walking off with his suitcase again, looking at the trees, going away from the boys and the street where he had lived. And as he turned the corner, a train whistle screamed and he began to run. In the early morning, with the iron smell of the train around him and a full night of traveling shaking his bones and his body, he awoke and looked out on a small town just arising from sleep. A porter moved by a shadow in the shadows. Sir, what town is this? Uh, Valleyville. How many people? Uh, Ten thousand. Why, this your stop? It looks green. It looks nice and quiet. Uh, son, you know where you're going? Here. I hope you know what you're doing, boy. Yes, sir. I know what I'm doing. It was down the dark aisle, luggage lifted after him by the porter, and out into this smoking, steaming, cold, beginning to lighten morning. He stood looking at the porter in the black metal train against the few remaining stars. Boy! Wish me luck! What? Wish me luck! Oh, best of luck, son. Best of luck to you, boy. Thanks! He watched the black train. He didn't move all the time it was going. He stood quietly, a small boy, 12 years old again, on the worn wooden platform, and only after three entire minutes until the train was completely gone away and out of sight did he turn at last to face the empty streets below. Then, as the sun was rising, he began to walk very fast so as to keep warm down into the new town. Tonight, the CBS Radio Workshop has presented two studies by Ray Bradbury, adapted and directed by Anthony Ellis. The first, Season of Disbelief, with Virginia Gregg and John Daner, Dawn Bender, Marion Richmond, and Herb Butterfield. The second, Hail and Farewell, with Richard Beals, Stacey Harris, Vivi Janis, Lawrence Dobkin, Paula Winslow, Roy Glenn, Billy Chapin, and Peggy Weber. We wish to thank Mr. Bradbury for being our special guest. Original music for tonight's program was composed and conducted by Jerry Goldsmith. The CBS Radio Workshop is produced by William Frew. America listens most to the CBS Radio Network. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley. Believe it or not. Judge Abraham Fuller of Newton, Massachusetts, was so fanatically opposed to debts that when a physician was called to write out his death certificate, the doctor found his fee in the dead man's clenched fist. Believe it or not. Cable cars in San Francisco have added charm and transportation for many years. Equally unusual is the Cliff Railway near Lynmouth, England. It has 900 feet of rails bolted to the solid rock of a cliff, and its two cars are operated with water. Water flows into the tank of the car at the top, and as it starts down, it pulls up the other car, which has been lightened by draining its water tank. Believe it or not. Another five-minute mystery.
anniversary party is going on at the Brown household around the corner. One of the guests, George Taylor, pauses while eating his dessert to say, Hmm, best lemon chiffon pie I've ever tasted, Mary. I wish my wife could do as well. Say, it doesn't look as if Sam is appreciating it much, though. Goodness, dear, is my cooking that bad? Sam, your head's practically in your plate. I guess it's fallen asleep, everyone. I'm, I'm so sorry. Oh, that's all right. Sam, Sam, sit up. Oh, dreadful. I'd, I'd better shake him. Sam. Sam! Great God, he, he's dead. How do you do? I'm Sergeant Barker, the homicide division. Oh. He's one of my boys, Mike Grady. Where's the body? In the dining room at the table. We didn't move him. Mm-hmm. I uh, might as well be comfortable, everybody. This will take just a little while. Mm. Dead, all right. Peaceful, too. Uh, who's Mrs. Sam Brown? I am. And do you mind telling me what happened? I guess not, but I'm so shocked. I, I don't know where to begin or what to tell you. Well, you might as well begin by telling me what you served for dinner. Well, we had soup first. Soup? What kind? Mushroom, then roast chicken, green peas, mashed potatoes, dessert, and coffee. But I, I don't see how this could mean anything. Yeah, just routine, Mrs. Brown. Did Mr. Brown eat everything? Yes, he did. He seemed to fall asleep over his coffee. Mm-hmm. And when I tried to wake him, I, I found he'd had a heart attack. Yeah. That'll be all for a few minutes, Mrs. Brown. We want to take a look around. Uh, notice anything about this table, Mike? No, Chief, I can't say as I do. Yeah, neither do I. Let's uh, look in this kitchen here. Yeah, orderly person, isn't she? Stack dishes after each course. Yes, and here's the silverware over here. Mm. Ah, look, look, Chief. One of these soup spoons has turned black. Right? Let me see it. Yeah, the only spoon that's tarnished, too. Well, I was beginning to think it was a heart attack or a perfect murder, but this silver soup spoon is evidence enough. Uh, Mrs. Brown? Yes, Sergeant Parker? I'm sorry to interrupt your little party, Mrs. Brown, but I'm sure your guests won't mind. I, I don't understand. You will, Mrs. Brown, you will. You see, you're under arrest for the murder of your husband. you know why Sergeant Barker accused Mrs. Brown of murder? In a moment, we'll hear the solution. But first, a word from our sponsor. Autolite resistor spark plugs are ignition engineered by Autolite, which makes more than 400 products for cars, trucks, airplanes, and boats in 28 plants from coast to coast. Autolite also makes complete electrical systems for many makes of America's finest cars. All ignition engineered to fit together perfectly, work together perfectly, because they're a perfect team. The lifeline of your car. So, folks, don't accept electrical parts that are supposed to be as good. Remember, you're right with Autolite. And now, back to our story. Sergeant Barker, how do you know it was homicide? Well, Mrs. Brown took careful pains to wash the soup pans and soup dishes before she served the rest of the meal. Yes, I I can see that. But she forgot one thing, to wash the silver soup spoons. What she didn't realize was that an hour later, by the end of dinner, the spoon her husband had used to eat his toadstool soup would give her away. She didn't know that toadstools make silver turn black. Mrs. Brown almost committed the perfect murder. But she forgot to wash one spoon.
I actually very much like playing the oldest radio I can find from time to time for really what amounts to not much more reason than it's old. Okay, there's more reason to it than that. I think it really helps our perspective to understand that it wasn't always 2012. That those people, in this case, almost 75 years ago, I guess I really should say more than 75 years ago and almost 80 years ago, were real. Real people, flesh and blood, with the same interest we had. Oh, they all wore hats. Not many of us do that anymore. Except me. I'm one of those guys who wears hats. Although I have to admit that that's recent and something of an affectation. I have to admit that I don't know very much about this program. Truth is, no one knows very much about this program called The Origin of Superstition, which, by the way, was also known as Superstition on the Air, and that its original run was in 1935 for 39 episodes. At least 39 episodes are all that are known to have survived. Superstition on the Air. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to offer you another short, short story in the series designed to disclose the origins of superstition. This one deals with the belief that if you carry a rabbit's foot, you will have good luck. Get out of this boxcar. Oh, Chief, have a heart. Let us ride into town, will you? Nothing doing. Come on, unload, unload. You can walk. Come on, scram. Okay, if that's the way you feel. That was a lousy freight anyway. You sure right, boss. I don't think we could have got along with that guy no how. He sure am tough. You said it, Mouthy. Well, come on, let's hoof it. I'm coming. I's coming, oh, my head ain't bending low. Say, Nifty, I's hungry. My stomach sure feels like someone done used a vacuum cleaner on it. Yeah, I'm hungry, too. 
Oh, gee, look, Mouthy. Look at all those chickens over there on that farm. Man, oh, man. Ozzy's my dinner staring me right in the face. Come on, Nifty. Let's go borrow one of them there fowls. Okay, Mouthy. Hey, but let's be careful. We gotta be sure no one sees us. Don't you all worry, boss. I've got my lucky rabbit's foot right here in my pocket. Rabbit's foot? Hey, what could the lad do? Why, oh, man, don't you all know a rabbit's foot brings you love? Yeah, you might think so, Mouthy, but if you're in for trouble, a rabbit's foot won't help you. Says you. No, sir, you's all wrong, boss. It done preserve me in many a delicate situation. Why, there's no sense in it, Mouthy. That belief started in the early ages. That may be, boss, but this year rabbit's foot sure ain't powerful. It's been in my family for a long, long time. Yeah, Mouthy, but that's an old superstition that originated with the Greeks. Is it so, boy? Yeah. You see, the rabbit was regarded as a symbol of fertility because it had many offspring, and frequently it was offered up as a sacrifice to the gods. The Greeks had an old proverb, to live in the midst of roast rabbit, which meant to live in the midst of plenty. Roast rabbit. Mm-mm. I sure wish I was a Greek right now, boy. Hey, <laughs> you're not the type, Mouthy. But anyway, among the early Greeks, there was a belief that various objects were endowed with a supernatural power, which was called manna. And the nearest explanation in English for the word manna is luck. And that's what you think your rabbit's foot has. Say, boy, where did you learn all this? In college, Mouthy. <laughs> uh, but that's another story. Anyway, 1,500 years before Christ, in a section of Greece known as Acadia... There had been a period of drought, and the people of the village of Euthus, realizing that they must send an offering to the oracle of the god Apollo to learn what they should do in order to bring the rain. What am an oracle, boys? Oh, an oracle was a place that was sacred to the gods. Priests were in charge of the oracles, and they interpreted the will of the gods to the people by going into a trance. Lysanias, who was the priest of the village of Euthus, selected three men whose names were Dorian, Menecrates, and Demosides to take the offerings to the oracle of the god Apollo and to learn why the rains didn't come. As our story opens, Dorian and his companion are making their way through mountainous country. And as they... Ah, my friends, tis many miles to the oracle of Apollo, and our journey becomes more hazardous. Yea, Dorian, and we must go down into the narrow defile before we begin the long climb over the crest of the mountain. Verily, Menecrates, and with these heavy packs it will add greatly to the danger. Yea, we must manage to get over the mountain before nightfall so we can make camp on the other side. Look, a wild rabbit. Watch, I'll kill it with my javelin. Ah, you got it, Dorian. Nay, Nay, it's scurrying away. Oh, I fear thy marksmanship is failing thee, Dorian. Yea, the rabbit got away. But look, my javelin has struck off its foot. Ably done, Dorian. For there are no swifter legs than those of the rabbit. I shall carry this rabbit's foot as an offering to the goddess of the wilds. Mayhap she will endow my spear with more manna, so that henceforth I shall strike more surely. Aye, but come, we must not delay here any longer. It is almost sundown. Yea, let us hurry. Oh, oh! What is it, Dorian? What has happened? My foot! My foot! I cut it on a sharp-jutted stone that lay in my path. Let us look at it, Dorian. 
Oh, see the Mercedes. Tis an ugly wound. Yea, Menegrites, and the cut is deep. Oh, by the gods, tis a miserable pain. I fear it will be difficult for me to walk. Alas, Dorian, perhaps you have aroused the wrath of the goddess of the wild for having struck off the foot of the rabbit. Yea, Menegrites, but I did promise it to her as an offering. Now I swear that I will sacrifice two goats unto her, so that it will appease her wrath. Surely, Dorian, that should appease her. Alas, my foot is bleeding more profusely. I must rest a while. But, Dorian, we cannot camp here. There is no shelter. Demosthenes and I will carry you. Yea, Dorian. Menecrates is right. Nay, it will be too much of a burden upon you, and our mission must be fulfilled. But we do not wish to leave you here, Dorian. It will be best that you go on. We must get the message from the Oracle as quickly as possible. I will bathe my foot in the stream yonder and follow when I have rested. You are right, Dorian. Come, Demosthenes, let us go. Fare thee well, my friend. Farewell, Dorian. Farewell. May the gods be with thee. Alas, Demosthenes, it is unfortunate that we must proceed without Dorian. Yea, Menecrates, but tis better that he rest a while. Ah, here is the defile, Demosthenes. We must be careful now. It is a sharp decline here. I'll follow behind you, Menecrates. By the gods, it's treacherous descending here. Yea, Demosthenes, careful you do not stumble. Follow in my path. Menecrates, what is that? I don't know. But... Demosthenes! Look! The mountain is falling there, us! Oh, we are lost! have forsaken us. Lysanius have betrayed us. Silence. Lysanius the priest, come forth. We would speak with thee. Yea, Archon, what is it? Speak. It is eight days since you sent Dorian and his companions to the Oracle of Apollo with our offerings, and they have not returned. We have been betrayed. Nay, Archon, they are three worthy men. Perhaps evil hath befallen them. Or perhaps they may have sold our offerings for their own gain, Lysanias. Where are the reins? Wait. Wait, my people. Have patience. Dorian and his companions have... Look, a man is coming over the hills. Where is he? Ah, tis Dorian. But he is alone. Help him, Archon. Bring him here. Ah, the gods be thanked that you have returned safely, Dorian. But where is Demosthenes and Menecrates? Alas, they are dead. Dead? What happened, Dorian? They were trapped in the defile and buried beneath the earth and rocks that swept down from the mountainside. But you, Dorian, how did you escape? Oh, tis wondrous how I was saved, Lysanias. T'was this rabbit's foot, which the goddess of the wilds endowed with manna, that protected me from the fate that befell my comrades. But how did this rabbit's foot protect you, Dorian? I pledged it as an offering to the goddess of the wilds when I severed it from the rabbit, and she in turn caused me to hurt my foot against a stone so that I had to remain behind. Thus I escaped their terrible fate. Verily, my people, the rabbit's foot is an omen of good. (laughs) 
And so when Dorian had told the people all about his experiences, they came to the conclusion that by carrying the rabbit's foot, he'd been under the protection of the goddess and so was saved from death. <laughs> but you know, Mouthy, the rabbit's foot had nothing to do with it. No, sir, you am wrong, Nifty. That rabbit's foot done saved that fella, Do... Dorian. But, Mouthy, don't you see that whether he'd had it or not, he would have injured his foot anyway. And if he'd not been injured, he would have gone on with his companions and been killed, regardless of the rabbit's foot. Well, boys, that's right, but... Shh, Ma- Mouthy, now here's the chicken coop. Don't make any noise when you climb over the fence. I'll wait here for you. Go on. Just a minute, boys. I've got to rub my rabbit's foot once more. Oh, all right, but hurry up now. Uh, all right, boss. Here I goes. Run, boss. They're after us. Come on, Mouthy. Uh, I'm right behind you, boss. Hey. Oh, what's the matter? Are, are you hurt, Mouthy? Yes, sir. Boss, I reckon I was not going to sit down for a week. That farmer done got me with a load of buckshot. <laughs> And you said your rabbit's foot would take care of you. I sure can't figure that out, boss. This am the first time I'd ever failed me. <laughs> and so, ladies and gentlemen, even though Malthus rabbit foot failed him this time, he will probably continue to believe in its so-called powers. Well, au revoir and good luck to you. Richard Wilson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times. Back to Julie by Richard Wilson. The side shuffle is no dance step. It's the choice between making time and doing time. You can't go shooting off to that dimension for peanuts. I don't want to give you the impression that peanuts are in short supply here, or that our economy is in the fix of having to import them sidewise. What I'm trying to convey is that, if you're one of the rare ones functionally equipped to do the side shuffle, you ought to be well paid for it, in any coin. That's what I told Krasnow, and he wasn't after peanuts. I'll do it, I said, if you'll make it worth my while. 
I'd hardly expect you to do it for nothing, he replied reproachfully. How much do you want? I told him. The amount shook him up, but only briefly. Okay, he said grudgingly. I suppose I'll have to give it to you, but the stuff had better be good. Oh, it is, I assured him. And you don't have to be afraid, because I couldn't possibly skip with the loot. I'll have to travel naked. I can't get there with so much as a sandal on one foot or a filling in a single tooth. Fortunately, my teeth are perfect. Sweat poured off Krasnow's florid face as he worked the combination of his office safe. His fat jowls quivered unhappily around his cigar while he counted out the bills. Ten percent was cash in advance, and the rest went into a bank account in my name. I paid off a batch of bills, then stripped and did my off to Buffalo. Honest, John Krasnow was a crooked district attorney who wanted to be governor and then president. He had the machine, but he didn't have the people. And because he needed the people, he needed me. I had been to this other dimension, the one on the farthest branch of the time tree, and I could give him what he wanted. Krasnow found out about it after I was hauled up in front of him on a check-kiting charge. I'd had something of a reputation before I got into difficulties, and, in trying to live up to the reputation, I had done some plain and fancy financing. Nothing that fifteen to twenty grand wouldn't have fixed. But while I scrunched around trying to get cash, I kited a few checks. They pyramided me right into the DA's office, where Krasnow was properly sympathetic. How, he asked, could a man of your standing in the scientific world stoop so low? It developed into quite a lecture, and, even coming from Krasnow, it made me feel pretty low. So I began explaining. I told him where I was born, and where I went to school, and where I had taken my sabbaticals, including this other dimension. And Krasnow, believe me, I can't account for it, except possibly because he knew he was a crook, and knew I wasn't one, exactly. Anyway, he believed me, and we made the deal, and I did the side shuffle, as agreed. The journey to that other dimension is not a pleasant one. It does disturbing things to the stomach, and you see everything thin and elongated, as if you're sitting too far to the side in a movie theater. I got there, however. and waited for the hiccups to subside. Hiccupy laterally, I had called them when I considered writing an article for the medical journal after my first trip. With the hiccupy gone, I stole some clothing, which was one of the riskiest parts of the program, and waited for morning. I didn't have any money, of course, so I had to hitchhike into town. I could have stolen myself a better fit, but people aren't clothes conscious in that dimension. They're more interested in what you are and what you can do. The driver of the car that gave me a lift asked, And what is your field of endeavor? I told him, I am able to eliminate the long wait in ivory production by accelerating the growth cycle of elephants. He was deeply impressed and tipped me handsomely. I was less impressed with his talent for growing cobless corn. and therefore had to return only a small part of the sum he gave me. The world of this dimension had developed some remarkable parallels to Earth. I mean our Earth, which falls into what I have designated Timeline 1.1, since it's the Earth with which I am most familiar. Every other world that has a language calls itself Earth, 
too. I had to visit briefly hundreds of the lateral worlds, hovering over primordial swamps, limitless oceans, insect kingdoms, and radioactive planetoids before I found the one that was truly parallel. It existed in Timeline 17.08, and it had refrigerators, platinum blondes, automobiles, airplanes, apple pie, tabloids, television, scotch and soda, just about everything we think makes life worthwhile. But it had its little differences, which was only to be expected in a timeline where the bionomics could create a new world each time someone changed his mind. Thus the cobless corn man was driving what looked to me like a Chevrolet, but which was a Morton in his world. He led me off near a downtown restaurant, where, thanks to our little exchange of talent talk, I had enough money for breakfast. It was considered unethical to swap talent talk outside the limits of certain rigidly defined groups, so I didn't try to out-impress the waitress. Fed, and filling my stolen clothes a bit better, I walked to the recorder's office and spent the rest of the morning looking up old documents. There was nothing there for Krasnow, as I had expected, but for me there was a very pretty file clerk. Talking to her, I verified my impression that human instincts and relationships were much the same in this dimension as in my own, except in the one basic respect that interested Krasnow, of course. The file clerk and I lunched together, and then I spent the afternoon in the library, but I didn't find anything there, either, and then I had dinner with her. She said her name was Julie. I told her mine was Heck, for Hector, which it is. She thought this was awfully cute, and we got along fine. Julie had a delightful apartment and a matching sense of hospitality. The following day, when she went to work, I stayed home and washed the dishes and made the bed and used the telephone. I ran up quite a bill with my long-distance calls, but I found out what I needed to know. I impressed a lot of people with my elephant story and pretended to be impressed hardly at all with what they told me they did, although often I was, very much. The trouble with these people is that they no longer know how to lie, if that can be listed as trouble. I don't think it can. Neither did Krasnow, obviously. He'd never have sent me off on my expensive side trip if he had. Of course Krasnow looked at it objectively. What he wanted from Timeline 17.08 was not for himself. It was for everybody else. He wanted the formula for the truth gas these people had developed long ago and loosed upon their world to put a stop to the wars. They had been in a bad way, although no worse than the sort of problem we were up against. Their trans-ocean squabbles and power politics seemed to have settled into a pattern of a war or two per generation, just like us. Hence, the man who invented the truth gas became a global hero, after a certain amount of cynicism and skepticism. All the doubts vanished, naturally, once the gas got to working, and so did war. You can't do much plotting and scheming if, every time you open your mouth to tell a lie, you stammer, sweat, turn red, and gasp for breath. It's a dead giveaway. Nobody tries it more than once. One or two men had tried to nullify the gas or work out a local antidote 
either as a pure research project or through power madness but because they had had to state their purposes as soon as they thought of them they were put away neat very neat what i wanted was the formula for the truth gas its location wasn't exactly a secret in this land of complete candor but it wasn't writ large on any wall for all to see either they kept it in their capital located about where our omaha is on file among the vital statistics i took a superjet out there i had no trouble posing as a historian entitled to the facts the gas didn't work on me you see because it was adjusted to the physiology of that timeline there was just enough difference between us for it not to make me stick to the truth we'll write out the formula for you i was told obligingly but you'll have to sign the usual statement of course i said which one is that the one that says you won't publish it and will destroy your copy when it has served your research purpose without letting anyone else see it oh that statement i said i signed freely told my elephant story and departed in an aura of goodwill the jet got me back that same evening julie fixed me up a snack and we discussed how pretty she was and how nice i was i had everything cross now wanted now i felt pretty good about it because there was nobody else who could have done the job for him and because it wasn't spying really earth 1.1 on the timeline is world enough for cross now i'm sure besides dimensions don't have wars with one another too many things can go wrong julie was lovely and i hated to leave the next morning but it was my job i told her i'm afraid i have to leave town for a bit dear but i'll be back very soon business you know being a 17.08 girl julie had no reason to doubt me make it very soon she whispered her lips close to my ear so i came back and now krasnow has what he wants he's delighted as he should be i've made up the gas for him and adjusted the formula so that it will work on people of our timeline it's high power stuff and a little will go a long way i also made up an antidote for him this was easy since i could work on it without feeling any compulsion to tell everybody what i was doing and why krasnow plans to release the truth gas just before the state convention he'll be nominated of course and after november he'll be governor with everyone else compelled to tell the truth it should be a cent for him he's a patient man honest john krasnow is and he's willing to wait four years for the presidency i ought to be happy too with the money krasnow gave me i've been living in the style to which i've always wanted to be accustomed he has offered me a place on his staff and somewhat superfluously the use of his antidote naturally the reason he was so magnanimous was that he doesn't want anyone else around who knows his gimmick and might have to tell the truth about it but i have had enough of this dimension now now that krasnow has what i promised him he's going to use it tomorrow and if i know honest john and i do not even the presidency will be big enough for him so i'm going back to julie there are some obvious questions in your mind i know such as why did i get the formula for krasnow knowing there was no way for him to prosecute me while i was julie's dimension 
and what made me come back in short what was in it for me let's call it research krasnow is a big-time operator i've always been you might say in the peanut end of the game he had a great deal to teach me and i i'm happy to say was an apt pupil you might speculate on what's in it for you because if you ask me anybody who can do the side shuffle should do it before krasnow becomes president however don't go to seventeen point zero eight unless you want to swap one krasnow for another the fact is i've learned that i can be one in julie's dimension after all their formula doesn't work on me but i can assure you that it will work on you and that elephant story i told on my last visit is as i've indicated in the peanut category all krasnow has is a country i'll have a whole world there's nothing like study under a master is there i should be back to julie by midnight if i start now end of back to julie by richard wilson